Now, we're going to find ourselves again in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. If you will just look there with me. Um, and we're going to look at verses really 5 through 13. We last week considered just verses 1 through 4, opening uh, this topic now on the servant of Yahweh. Who is the servant of Yahweh? And in verses 1 to 4, we concluded already that that servant is none other than one that would come, the Christ Jesus. Now, we had already looked at this idea of servant and realized that God has in that anointed at times was Cyrus. God would use Cyrus, and he would be the servant of God. We also have already considered the fact that there is a servant, and that servant is Israel. And God's servant is Israel, and he is, or she was supposed to go into um, the land and be a witness for Yahweh, but at times uh, Israel failed. And that's why right now, even with Judah, Judah uh, is in captivity to Babylon, and they're following captivity to Babylon from their northern brothers, Israel, who was captive to the Assyrians. So they failed in their commission. They failed in being a servant. They failed in what God had created them to be. And of course, if we look into the New Testament, then God has servants, and you are part of his servants. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one of his servants, and now he has commissioned you to go into to not fail, um, to be like the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did all the will of the Lord, to be like his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, he always does the things that are pleasing to him. Christ said that of himself, I always do the things that are pleasing to him in the gospel of John. And of course, uh, that's what we want to have in our lives. That is, we would want to be people that can say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But we know we don't. We know we all for, fall short, do we not? And we fall short and then we fall on the mercy of God and God forgives us because that is a part of the servant's work is to give his life as a ransom for many. So now, since the servant has given his life, we can come to the throne of grace in time of need. And we can, according to 1 John 1 and 9, we can confess our sins and God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So what the servant has done. Now, we noted already in verses 1 to 4 the idea of behold. And so we have seen this word before. Uh, behold, the nations are a drop in the bucket. Behold, idols are nothing. And now he says, behold, my servant. So in contrast to the nations, in contrast to the idols, pay attention to my son. And notice he says, I will uphold. It's a word that is communicating this sense of absolute support. He is my chosen one. And then he says, in whom my soul delights. So God um, had a delight in creating Israel, but yet uh, instead of Israel being a delight to the Lord, Israel had become a burden to the Lord. And that's why he sends them into exile so that they can learn from their sinful patterns. And notice this servant is going to be successful because he has the spirit of the Lord. Put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And this is a part of his purpose is justice. Notice how it's repeated actually three times in these four verses. Verse one, he will bring forth justice. Then verse three, he will faithfully bring forth 
justice, verse 4, until he has established justice on the earth. And as he goes through his commission, there will be moments when he potentially could be discouraged and not fulfill his role as the servant to bring about justice. But it tells us clearly in verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed. And if you may remember, um, Isaiah has these play on words here because he communicates in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And he uses forms of the word again in verse 4, and here it's just translated are crushed. He is not going to be bruised ultimately and give up, and he's not going to be a wick that is blown out. He will not be disheartened. He will fulfill his mission. And in life, uh, there are many things that we can start, um, but we don't finish. And if I would ask you right now, has there ever been a mission, a task, something you commissioned yourself to do or someone else commissioned you to do and you didn't finish it? Uh, of course, uh, uh, we have been. And hopefully uh, there are fewer things that we have started and don't finish. Uh, right now, uh, the last several days, I haven't slept much because I'm trying to meet um, some deadlines. And it says, I have to finish this. I get on a plane Tuesday, I'll be flying to Ethiopia, and I'll be there for eight days, and I come back again, and I'm here for a little bit, then I'm gone again. So I'm saying to myself, I'm not going to take this on this plane. Um, and I have a deadline, and I actually got a bit of an extension for it. So I felt like I was sort of like in school again, uh, where I'm drinking coffee, and I'm pulling all-nighters. <laughs> and here I am at 4.30 in the morning thinking, okay, I, can, if I, I just have about two more hours to go because I have to finish this. I haven't been disheartened. I've been tired, uh, and that's very, very different. Uh, and part of the reason, and you pray for me, I still have just a little bit more to go because I have a, a word count that they're saying no more than this word count. Um, and that's, you know, like 3,000 words isn't that much, right? Um, but when you're trying to take something that's pretty big and to put it into 3,000, that's hard. It was one of the hardest things that I've done. So I just wanted to call up and say, hey, can't we, you know, 6,000 is good too, right? <laughs> I get double the words. Yeah. Well, you're only doing one chapter. So there you go. So I've really, I've been working on it. Finish it. Now that's a, that's an illustration. But imagine if you are on a mission to bring forth justice on the earth and you come to your own and the scripture says, and his own did not receive him. Imagine if you come to your own and the religious leaders are constantly thinking about ways that they can destroy you. Imagine you come to your own and even your family doesn't believe you. They think that they, you have lost your mind, but you won't be discouraged. Imagine you come to your own, and there you are in the Passion Week, and you're being brutalized, especially when his passion intensifies, and he has been slapped, and his beard is being pulled out, and a crown of thorn is being placed on his head. He would not be discouraged. And why would he not be discouraged? Because plainly, uh, the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, he says, for the what was in front of him, what was in front of Jesus Christ? And so that joy, what would that joy be? That joy would be that he would please his heavenly father. So he is motivated to please his heavenly father. So this servant, unlike Israel, didn't have that heart like the servant to please God. But this servant did. And this is why I even closed uh, the lesson last week by 
presenting some challenges to you. That is, how will you live like this servant? Um, and at times, as I thought about it, I was a bit intense at times, especially when I talked about asking the question whether or not you actually know the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know the Lord Jesus Christ. Who comes to Grace Church that doesn't know Christ? Thousands of people come to Grace Church that don't know Jesus Christ. Because you hear it in the baptistry all the time, do you not? I was here for five years or ten years, or I was in the college department, an adult, that I've been around this environment and this culture for many years, and I realized that I really didn't know the Lord. So there's no way that you can be a servant unless you actually know Christ. And at times you say, well, you were, were pretty intense last week. Well, you're right, I was intense, because that is, that's our calling, and you say, wait a minute, we're just a fellowship group. It's just sort of like a big Sunday school class. Uh, why be so intense here? Well, the question would be then, why open the word of God? Why study anything? You know, wh why not just, you know, we just have tables out uh, and we just have a car feast. And, and, you know, we have some music in the background and we just shake one another's hands and encourage each other in the faith. And even the question would be then, how can I encourage you in your faith? You may not even have faith. No, this is our life. This is who we are. And so we need these reminders environment and a main service environment and your Bible studies. You need that environment. When you fellowship, you need that encouragement as well if we're going to be the servants that God has called us to be. So, yes, it was intense, and I'm not, uh, it could be intense today. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it could be intense today. Uh, because the times in which we live call for us being intense Christians, does it not? And what does the scripture tell us in Ephesians chapter 5? It says what? It says, uh, be wise, not unwise, making the most of your time, for the days are what? Evil. It doesn't say, hey, the days are um, good and, and people are loving the Lord all across this globe and people are recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a revival spreading across the land and no one denies the living God. And our kids are not being indoctrinated on evil and vileness. No, the days are what? The days are evil. So it requires that you be intense as well. It requires, that you, it requires that you realize that you're in a battle as well, that you be a servant as well, that you be a warrior, which we'll notice in a moment in this passage as well. Because if not, here's a question. Do you think the world is going to treat you in a friendly manner? No, it will not. No, it will not. The world will devour you. That's what it seeks to do. The enemy wants to lead you astray, so we have to keep our focus on this servant. Now, there's some initial thoughts I have for you, and it's this. Um, often, restatement is needed to make a point, and it's needed to make a point, and I would say especially needed for overcoming spiritual shortcomings. And what we've been seeing, even since in chapter 40, there's a spiritual shortcoming that Judah has, and it is not to recognize Yahweh as superior, to not recognize so the sovereignty of Yahweh. 
And now the Babylonians have this great power and then there's doubt that comes into the heart of Judah and they're wondering whether or not God can bring them out of exile. And so time and time again, God has to state and restate that I'm a faithful God. I'm the all powerful God. I'm the creator God that you can in fact trust me. Now the things that we learn in life and we learn them often because they're repeated. Um, someone say, for instance, uh, if you think about, it, I just looked out and I saw the faces of some of our, um, seminarians that are here. Um, okay, Julian, I have a question for you. Didn't you just take the Hebrew class this summer? You did take the Hebrew class this summer and I'm not going to put you on the spot and have, you know, have you explain what is a pool stem? I'm not going to do anything like that. But the question is, is it not true that you never learned a concept the first time you heard, or maybe, I'm sorry, you could be a genius, and maybe you did. Yeah, yeah, there's a few people that are like that, right? The first time you hear it, oh, okay, I got it. Uh, But photogenic memory can get the concept, I get it, I'm moving on. Few people like that in the world. Some of you may be in our midst, Uh, and if you are, maybe we could work out something, you know? (laughs) you know, rub shoulders or something like that with me. I'm not that way. I have to hear things again and again and again. I remember my days in seminary having my three-by-five cards, and I find them every once in a while. I'm looking through things in my desk or through other files. Oh, man, here are those three-by-five cards. That's right. And I'm going over. I hear some Greek words, and I find through words because I remember the days of flipping through them and flipping through them and time and time again. I think I had the idea but I didn't. I remember preparing for ordination and I went through all the Bible. Here are the outlines. Here are the key themes. Here are the key passages. Uh, Here are the people that are involved and I actually made a recording of it. I went through and I recorded it and what I would do is I'd listen to it and I'd stop and I'd say, okay, give me the the outline of Matthew. Okay, Um, essentially two parts, presentation of the king, rejection of the king, and I could take you through what those parts are, and then I'd stop it, and Joanna remembers, even before we were married, we'd be in the car, and I'd play the tape, or I'd give her the three-by-five cards, and she'd give me the answer, and I'd say, well, that's based on this, or she'd say, what's the outline for this, and I'd say, this is this, and and what's infralapsarianism, and she'd say, well, it's this, Um, because you don't get it the first time. When it comes to spiritual things, I ask you a question. Is there an area in your spiritual life where you say, I just am not there yet? And, and I would answer it for you. Absolutely. <laughs> I would just answer it for you. Absolutely. I'm not there yet. You need to hear it again. How about when it comes to this area of trust? Have you arrived? Any arrivers? Any arrivers? I'm looking. Here's your opportunity. <clears throat> Raise your hand. Uh, yeah, wannabe. Raise your hand. I have arrived. I trust the Lord in every circumstance, in every way, in every opportunity. Hmm. Now, if you were to raise your hand, I would say, friend, Bill, talk to them. They need counseling. <coughs> Self-deceived. It doesn't exist. So we have to hear these things again and again and again. Why is it so many times we see, as we looked in chapter 40, um, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Because we do what? We fear. We fear. And so here, let me give you the outline for this passage that we're going to consider, how God is back on the scene and he's stating 
his sovereignty again. So number one, it's going to be in verse five, the reassertion of his sovereign creation. Then in verses six and seven, the restatement of his sovereign care. And then in verse eight, the restatement of his sovereign character. And then in verse nine, the revelation of his sovereign change. And that's interesting because you say, wait a minute, sovereignty and change. Can those two work together? I'll explain it to you in a moment. And then in verses 10 to 13, the response of his sovereign creation. And let me let you know right now, but when I say the response of his sovereign creation, uh, I mean the people that are called by his name, uh, the people of old. And so let's make our way through it. These five considerations. And if we would consider them again, we can identify even more who is this servant of Yahweh and why we should trust this servant of Yahweh and why we should trust the sovereign God of the servant of Yahweh. So number one is this, the reassertion of his sovereign creation. Verse five, notice it. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring and gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So here is a, a reassertion of his sovereign creation. And why do I say that? Because we've been seeing from the very beginning of this series that God keeps saying again and again that I'm the creator God. And one may stop and say, okay, we understand that you're the one that created the heavens and the earth. Why do you keep making that point? Why? Because the Babylonians and their gods and even Israel, who is in exile, they're believing that the Babylonian gods are the creating gods. And they're believing that perhaps they are equal to our God who created the heavens and the earth. And God wants to state again and again and again, make sure that you understand this. It's like um, what used to be. Some of you may be old enough to remember chalkboards. Uh, you remember chalkboards, right? Uh, do you remember chalkboard? You don't have to raise your hand on that one. Uh, but I'm looking out. You remember chalkboards. <laughs> and you remember chalkboards, right? But on a chalkboard, there are times maybe if it was a lesson, the teacher may, a part of a teaching mechanism was to do what on the chalkboard? Go and write it what? A hundred times. I write it 15 and I still remember the day when we're going through our multiplication tables, we would go to the chalkboard and there it was. And we'd go, especially if we got all the way up to 12 by 12, 144. I remember writing that on the chalkboard and going through it. Uh, it was necessary. It was a, a mechanism to say, let me repeat this to you again and again and again, that I am a God that is sovereign over all of creation. Now, go back with me if you will to um, chapter, look with me, it's chapter 40, verse 12, this statement. He says, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in the pair of scales? Why? Because I am the God uh, that creates. And then what does he say again? Earth, the inhabitants of and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I am the creating God is what he is communicating here. And then he communicates this thought again um, when we look at chapter 41. Chapter 41, again, another statement that he is the creating God 
He says, I will open rivers and bare heights and spread out in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness. I will put the juniper in the desert. How is it possible? Because I am, in fact, the creating God, so trust me. And so here he states again that he is the one that's created. Go back to verse 5, and he is the one that stretched out and spread. And notice what he says. The last statement of his creative power is this. He gives breath to the people on it. These false idols that you want to trust, they have no what? Breath. They have no breath because they have no life. What did God do to man? He made him a living creature when he did what? He breathed life into him. Now he had breath. And so he says, I'm the one that I give life. It is not these false idols that give life. How can they possibly give life or (laughs) protect you from death when they have no life themselves? It makes no sense. And this is why he communicates that they are nothingness. They're void. They are chaos. And when he says chaos, it's as if the world before he formed it and make it, it was in a state of chaos. So here... He restates he is a creating God. He is the one who watches over us. Secondly is this, the restatement of his sovereign care. Notice verse 7, verses 6 and 7. And what does it say? I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. But notice his care. Now, this care is to the servant. How is he supporting the servant? Well, we already noticed earlier he would support the servant by upholding him. He had chosen him. His spirit was upon him. And now he says, I've called you in righteousness. That is, I've called you for a righteous purpose. Fulfill it. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. Now, we've seen this language several times in this passage about holding by the hand. And we notice, you remember, uh, that he was going to uphold his people by his righteous right. And remember earlier when we looked at some of our previous lessons, how God takes through the writings of Isaiah, he takes this idea of his right hand and he juxtaposes it. That is, he, he shows, look how the... Uh, compliment one another, even in these opposite ways. He says here, I have a hand that is a hand of what tenderness and I'll care for you, but I also have a hand that is a hand of warfare. God is like that. And that's a beautiful consideration because this same God is the one that fights battles for you. And as a warrior is the same God that holds you and watches over you with tenderness. So it's this absolute support. And then he says as well, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. Israel, its history was to be just that. Why did God choose this small, insignificant people group to uh, this land that was full of these mighty warriors and mighty people? He's saying this so that you would be a light to them. And what happened? Israel allowed their light to be covered by wanting to be like the nations. And it's no different for us today if we were to apply this to the New Testament. The scripture tells us that we are the light of the world, are we not? And what are we supposed to do with our light? Make sure that that light is visible and not hide it under peck measure, not not clothe it where people can't see the light. 
And that's often what we do if we live our lives inconsistently. We're not allowing our light to shine. And it's probably a song that some of you may remember, even as a little kid singing it, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. But indeed, that's what we're called to, as simple as that song is. That's our faith. And this is why Jesus Christ, and he would say, though, as a servant, I am the light of the world. And of course, he would do it in a time when around them would have been these great candelabras that everyone would see all of this light during this time of festival. And he would say, oh, these lights are here and they do represent something, but I am that ultimate light. Will you follow me? And of course, what does he do? And when we think about light uh, to see spiritually, because in connection to him making a pronouncement that he was the light of the world, uh, what does he do? He performs a great miracle. And what was that great miracle? He would open the eyes of a man who was born what? Blind. So he could see. I've had a conversation, you know, even recently. It was in a conversation we had um, about someone, and they, they were blind. And we just thought, wow, you know, I've known people a day and, um, you know, that are legally blind and just those, it's absolutely nothing whatsoever that they can see. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of my uncles, legally blind, um, um, very um, successful, one of the first, actually he was uh, in Florida, the first African-American pharmacist in the state. Um, and it done quite well. And something happened uh, because of an illness, he eventually would lose his sight. And of course, pharmacy, blindness, not a good combination, right? And so Uncle saying he had to retire. <laughs> but he had lived in this same house for so many years that he could get around. He just knew his way. It's as if he could walk out of his bedroom. He could make a turn. He sort of knew, I'm going to go so many steps, then I'll turn, and there's the kitchen. And I can go so many steps, and I know I can see the place right now, and I could and go into what we call a Florida room. And he could watch, well, he wasn't watching television. He was listening to television. And he said, man, that was a great game tonight. I said, what do you mean, Uncle Sang? I could, because I still remember seeing ball games. So when I hear it, I can visualize the Dodgers beating the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if my uncle said it, it must be, you know, come on. Oh, come on. You <laughs> right? But there are certain things he couldn't do. And we'd have to come over and we'd help him out. My sister would come and help him and do things for him because he didn't have his vision. Blindness. And the scripture tells us um, in 2 Corinthians, it says, the God of this world has blinded the what? the minds of all. And so Israel was to be a light to the nations. How are they going to be a light? They would say, no, it is not Mardok. It is not Ra. It is not the Asherah. Right? It's not Baal, who is a great God. It is Yahweh. And the nations are supposed to look at Israel and say, why do these people not fear anything? Because Yahweh fights for us. 
Why do these people live so differently? Why are they so committed to their marriages? I don't understand it. We are a people and we don't believe in being committed to marriages. We have open marriages. Why is it that they don't live in these sinful patterns? Because Yahweh is their God. That's how they were supposed to be the light. And this is why we see early on God telling the people of God, do not be like the nations. And they became like the nations. No longer became a light. You go to Israel today, we say go into the Holy Land, and it's a great place to go, but it's a secular nation. I think people think, oh, we go to Israel, and everyone has, you know, the Torah in their hand, and they're, they're singing the songs of old in their hand, and they're thinking about Yahweh. And when you go to a place to, you know, of commerce, they're saying, my friend, I'm so glad that you're visiting our great nation, Israel. We are the sure people of God. We are believers in Yahweh. No. 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 It is a secular nation. They are no longer a light to the nations. They are not. They have failed. But there is one servant who would not fail, amen? <laughs> and that would be Jesus Christ. So note the commission of the servant. Note his commission. Uh, go back to the text, and it says, what here? Um, so a light to the nations, but then verse 7, we see purpose. So yes, they're cared for, and they're supported, they're appointed, and we might even say that's his sovereign commission. We might add that word to it, his sovereign commission. But what is, the, what is that commission? To open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Uh, every soul that doesn't know Christ is in prison, are we not? And you're in a dungeon whether you recognize it or not. And this is why the scripture tells us so plainly in the Gospel of John, Christ says of himself, um, or of, yes, of himself, whom the Son sets free shall be what? Free indeed. Free indeed. He offers spiritual freedom. Um, so let's move on. Um, actually, no, let's pause for a moment. Go with me to 49. Still under this sense of mission. Go with me to 49, Isaiah 49. Um, notice verse 8. Notice verse 8. Thus says the Lord. And that's important. I didn't notice it in verse 5. But thus says God, Yahweh. And of course we see thus saith the Lord in verse 7. And then thus saith the Lord here in 49.8. Obviously a statement of authority. Listen to what is being said. And he says in verse 8, in a favorable time I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you, and I will keep you, and I'll give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are along the roads, they will feed, and their pasture will be on their bare heights. And then notice verse 10, they will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down for he who has compassion on them will lead them and guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. That's the language that we saw very early in chapter 40 about these places that are going to be leveled out and mountains are going to be lowered and highways that are going to be raised. His people will be restored. And then notice in verse 
12, it says what? Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these come from the north and from the south, and these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. He is his word. Now notice his wording here in verse 13, for the Lord or for Yahweh has comforted his people. What was his first promise in chapter 40 where we began this series? Comfort, oh comfort my people, says the Lord. How are they going to be comforted? They will be comforted by knowing that a servant is going to come that will be obedient unlike them. Their affliction and their turmoil and their trouble will come to an end. Look with me at chapter 61 in Isaiah 61. Here is an application of this to the servant as well. 61 verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the statement that's now being reaffirmed what we saw in 42 because Yahweh has anointed me. I am his Christ. I am his Messiah. And what has he anointed me to do? To bring good news to the afflicted. He has set up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives. See, these are the ones that are in the dungeon and freedom to prisoners. This is a statement that Jesus Christ makes in John chapter 8. Whom the Son sets free shall indeed be free indeed. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now that's interesting. Look at verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, absolutely. That favorable year is now God is making all things right. Justice is going to flow throughout the earth. But then he also says, in the vengeance of our God. So obviously, for to some degree, for justice to come about, there may be a need for what? Judgment. <laughs> and this is why I even said to you last week, and I say to you again, friends, are you in Christ? Because if you are in Christ, it will not be a, it would be a day of vengeance. If you are not in Christ, it won't, it won't be a day of comfort. If you are not in Christ, it will not be a day of comfort. It will be a day of vengeance for you if you're not in Christ. But if you are, nothing but heaven. I just, um, something, let me pull it up so I get the details right. Um, that I'll share with you. Um, from Voice of the Martyrs, okay, recognizing sort of a point in history. Anna Wang. How many of you have ever heard of Anna Wang? Um, she was one of 300 Christians killed on June 11th, and this is why they were marking it, yesterday being the 11th, in the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. She refused to disavow Christ, so she was brutally murdered. Not just murdered, but brutally murdered. And they're showing a picture of her. I have it here. A uh, beautiful picture of her. She has her hands like this, and in the backdrop, we see a temple from, looks like something that you, would be maybe from the Forbidden City, um, but she refused to disavow Christ. No, I will not disown Christ, amen? Because Christ would never disown me because a servant has completed the work. 
I stand righteous before him. What you say, what's your point with vengeance and justice and the servant? Um, I, I do think at times, what is going to those that murdered Anna Wayne if they don't come to Christ? And if they come to Christ, that's the beauty of salvation, isn't it? You can, like a Paul, because we go from, what, Saul to Paul, you can be like a Paul, and Paul, even throughout his Christian life, at times he was disturbed because he says, I tried to destroy the church of God. And no wonder, he says, the, the love of Christ motivates me, and it would motivate him because he would say to himself, if this God can love me and would give himself for me, and I ch- attempted to destroy his church, how can I not serve him. But I do think what is going to happen to those that were responsible for the murder, the brutal murder of Anna Wayne, it will be a day of what? Vengeance. Like they could never imagine. And when Anna went through before she crossed the Jordan, if you will, was nothing Nothing compared to what she received a moment later. And what satisfaction these people gained by brutally murdering her, thinking that they were standing up for something that was right, is nothing in comparison to the eternal pain that they will feel. So, no, he is a God that has us on a mission. Here's our third consideration. And it is this. The restatement of his sovereign character. Go back to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. The restatement of his sovereign character. It says, I am the Lord. Uh, that is my name. So I am even keeping God. That is my name. And that's important that he says this. And that's what I think is important even in... Um, the LSB has made that decision to translate when we see Lord in this way, Yahweh, because even the text tells us that is my name. His name is not Lord. His name is Yahweh. I will not give my glory to another. Why is that important, this idea of glory? And this is what we're seeing throughout this passage. No, it is my glory. I will not share my glory with another. What does glory mean? The glory, we can look at it several different ways. The glory may be a, a physical manifestation of God's perfections. We can see at times, uh, whether it be one of the prophets of old or, or even Isaiah early on in Isaiah 6, seeing the glory of God manifest in the temple. So we see a physical manifestation of his perfections. That is his glory. But then glory is simply is as as an individual, all of those perfections. So remember, um, and it is a physical manifestation in some ways, uh, Exodus in 33, and Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and he allowed him to see a portion of his glory, and he makes a pronouncement about his character and who he is. So when we think about God's glory, it's all of his attributes, his, his sovereignty, it's his compassion, it's his mercy, it's his goodness. This is his glory. At times, people live, and not at times, without Christ, they live for their own glory, do they not? Glory in the sense of prestige. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, look at all my glory which my hands have built, and we know how that story ends. We know that people fall short of the glory of God. That is, they fall short of his perfection. So he says, I won't share my glory, 
and what he's saying, I won't share the honor due me because I'm a perfect God with any. I will not share with anyone. This is my character. I would not share my praise with any graven images. And hold on to that word praise because it's going to come up in just a moment. Go with me, if you will. I do want us to go to one other spot. Go with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. And then because we see again the application of this to Christ in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had um, been brought up and it, as it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet, what book was it? Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. What was written? Let's notice verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why is it upon him? Because it was pronounced in Isaiah 42. I will place my spirit upon him. Why will I place it upon him? Because my soul delights in him. He is my servant. He will be empowered to do my will because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. As Isaiah says, those who are in dungeons, those who are, who are blind and recovery of sight to the blind to set those who are oppressed, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he says, notice this. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendants and sat down. Consider Isaiah 42. And what does Isaiah say? Behold my servant. Be fixed on my servant. See my servant. And now we see what Isaiah had pronounced all these hundreds of years earlier shown here. But here is this interesting. I want you to see the rest of this narrative. And all were speaking well of him and wondering the of the, at the gracious words which were falling from his lips and was saying, is this not Joseph's son? How in the world can he speak with such power and have such presence? We know him. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we, <clears throat> we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. Uh, no, I won't be given to your timetable. But you say, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with joy having heard these words. <laughs> Is that what it says? No. no. You would think, what a great opportunity. The servant has come. You've, you've heard this passage read time and time again. And now he says, it is fulfilled here in your presence. And his life would have demonstrated that, in fact, no, he is the fulfillment of it. Now, of course, more throughout the gospel will fulfill more of it. But nonetheless, what does it say? And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. And what was their response? And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to throw him over the hill of the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went their way, his way. What an amazing response. Because you often look and say, how is it that Israel doesn't get it? Why serve Yahweh? 
Don't they see that time and time again, when they don't serve the Lord, there is trouble, there's difficulty, there's heartache, there's pain. And it's repeated here. I mean, this is why I think all of us should be, and I have learned over the years, to be cautious at times in my indictment first of anyone, but of Israel as well, because we can say of ourselves, why is it that we don't get it? Why do we not trust the Lord the way that we should? I don't understand those Judeans. I don't understand those Israelites. Why would they not trust Yahweh? He's such a faithful God. But we can do things that are similar. Go back to Isaiah. We'll finish up here. I won't share my glory with another. It is my own. So the revelation of his sovereign change. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So, okay, what new things are you proclaiming before they manifest? Well, I am, in fact, going to send a servant to you. This is a new thing. I am, in fact, going to bring you out of captivity, and this is the way that I'm going to bring you out of captivity. Cyrus is going to come, and he's going to defeat the, uh, the Babylonians. Let me proclaim this to you. Trust it. And then our last thought is this. Um, the response of his sovereign creation. So what's the response to all of this? And what you see really in verses 10 to 13, Isaiah just explodes in this call for the people of God to praise. And he says, what? Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell in them, all the cities lift up her voice. And in verse 10, let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh. Because Yahweh has already pronounced, I won't give my glory to another and my praise to graven images. Make sure that our praise is directed to the only one that deserves it, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and declare his praise to the coastlands, to all the earth. This new song. What does it mean, a new song? Let me give you some examples. Go with me to the Psalms. Look at Psalm 33. Psalm 33, a new song. Well, it's in one sense fairly simple. Uh, the Israelites had many songs that they would sing. And at times when God would do another wonder, another work, another delivery, they would write a what? A new song, a new song unto the Lord. Um, it says in verse one, sing for joy in Yahweh, you righteous one, becoming the upright. And he says in verse three, sing to the Lord a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. God has done mighty, wondrous things. Keep writing songs to him. And then notice Psalm 98. Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Notice, so important, gain the victory for him. Ultimately, it's something that we're aware of, but let me restate it. When we think about salvation, God has saved us for his own glory. We all agree with that, do we not? Sometimes misguided theologians or so-called preachers will say that God has saved us because he saw our need. Indeed, he did. He saw that we were wretched creatures. Indeed, he did. 
and therefore he loved us so much. This is really the reason that he saved us. No, it is beyond that. God saved us for his glory. He wanted to manifest to all the universe, look at how gracious a God I am. Now, those words, when we say look at, for us, inappropriate, amen? But for God, highly appropriate, not only appropriate, necessary, and it is his worth. I want all the earth, all the universe to see how great a God I am. So, time, so many times in pop culture, athletes are trying to determine the GOAT. You've heard that before? The greatest of all times. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Uh, uh, childlike conversation. It really is. There's only one that can say, I am the greatest of all time. Recognize me. Praise me. So break out in song. Look with me, if you will. It's interesting. Just note it, Psalm 137.4, the people of God say, how can we sing a song in a foreign land? They're saying, we're in captivity. How can we sing the songs of Zion? And God is saying, sing the songs of Zion because I am going to deliver you. But let me point you to something. Go with me to the book of Revelation. Ouch. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, and we'll end with this thought. Um, <clears throat> verse 3, well, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song from the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 just from the earth. These are the ones who had not been defiled with women, for they kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits of God and to the lamb. A new song. So why is it a new song? God's saying there's going to be a new exodus. There was a song that was sang after the Exodus, was there not? Because God is trampled under Pharaoh and all of his chariots. There have been songs that were sang by the people of God throughout their history. And he said, there's going to be a new song, a new Exodus. You will leave Babylon. But then there's going to be another song that was sang. Ultimately, God is going to make all things right. Sing that song with all of your might, with all of your strength. Final thought for you, and I'll leave you with this. What is your response to the sovereign servant? Just a thought. I won't even comment, and I normally do. What is your response to him? Here, sing praise. Do it with joy, with all of your might, with all of your heart. How will you respond to this God? Amen? Father, we thank you for those words you've given us. Uh, show us grace as we seek to follow the servant. Amen.